Amen. Good to see you, Mars Hill. Doing okay this morning? Good. You're awake. You're with me. This is awesome. We're starting a new book this morning, a new study through 1 John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 this morning, and studying God's Word, and I'm excited about this study. Uh, I think it's going to be so encouraging for us uh, as we work through uh, this text. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know that we live in an increasingly secular society, secular meaning apart from God or without God or distant from God. We live in an increasingly pluralistic society. Pluralism is essentially uh, the worship of multiple gods. And we live in a society that is increasingly hostile even, skeptical for sure, and hostile even towards the Christian faith, towards belief. Some of you know that personally because in your own families, you have family members that, that say, you believe what? How could you believe that? How could you come to understand that? And, and they question. And we have friends, we have coworkers, we have family that constantly co co, uh, uh, question our faith. And, and in that context, the more we hold to the Word of God, the more we affirm our faith in Jesus as the only means of salvation... The more we do that, the more we feel like we're on an island. The more we can feel like that. The more we actually will begin to feel like a smaller and smaller minority in terms of our belief. And in that, when that happens, when that happens in your, your workplace, when that happens in your family, it's not too far removed from then beginning to wonder, have I believed rightly? I mean, is my faith in the right thing, and, and is what I believe true? Is, is this word that we've, we say that we believe is true and authoritative, inspired by God, God's very word, is it true, really? And we can begin to question ourselves. We can begin to doubt. I don't know if you've been there. I've certainly been there in my Christian life. I've been there as a pastor. It's possible to, when you hold something, you feel like you're on an island alone, or if you feel like in, your, in a family context where people begin to question, you begin to go, wait a second, did I miss something here? And fortunately, in God's grace, in God's providence, he's given us the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John for that very reason. He's given us these letters to believers in that very context, in a context, a secular context, a pluralistic context, a context in which Christianity is, is the minority, it, where Christianity is, is not championed, where believers are on an island. And in that context, these believers begin to question, did we believe rightly? Is our faith true? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Can Jesus really do what he says he could do? Can he really forgive sins, reconcile me to God? Can he do more than that, even restore this broken world? Is it true? And they begin to doubt and they begin to question. And there were even false teachers questioning the teachings of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. And, and so in that context, it's really nothing but the Garden of Eden all over again. Did God really say... Does he really know what's best for your life? 
Does he really love you and care for you? Are you sure about that? Those same questions, those same doubts creep in in the context of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and they creep in in the context of our lives here even now. I talk to many believers, many in our own church, that wrestle with, how do I know that I'm actually saved? How do I know that, that I have eternal life? And again, by God's grace, in God's providence, he has given us, preserved for us, these letters to address those very doubts, those very questions, and those very issues. As we start this morning, I want us to spend a few minutes talking about who is writing. We need to understand that to understand the context. It will help illuminate what is being said. And then we need to spend some time talking about why he is writing. We need to understand the context and what he's trying to say, what the primary purposes, aims of this, these letters are. And then we'll spend a few minutes talking about the implications again just for us, the application to our own life right here, right now. This text is extremely relevant, extremely personal, and extremely applicable and practical for our lives. And I'm excited that we're going to be studying through this. We'll be in this up till Resurrection Sunday studying through these three letters, and they're going to be profitable, and I encourage you to spend some time reading through them as we do that. Let's look first at who is, is writing here. There's no salutation that's common in letters, epistles. There's usually an introduction, I, Paul, write to you these things. That's how Paul usually introduces his letters. That's not here. We don't see that. There's, there's no salutation. There's no introduction in the first few verses here. But despite that, most scholars and, and church history has believed that this is still written by the Apostle John. This is one of the disciples of Jesus, the, the sons of Zebedee, the brother of James, the one that wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. There's a lot of reasons for that belief. There's a lot of understanding that goes into that. One is the title is John. That was actually in the letter. And so that's a first clue that there is a John that is writing this. And then later in, in, in the second letter, he says the elder. And, and, and that means he's some sort of leader in the church. And most of the disciples of John also speak up and say... John wrote this, so there's a lot of evidence there, but there's also a lot of evidence in the text that this is John, the apostle, the disciple. If we look back and we understand who John is, he's one of the apostles, he's, he was one of the disciples who, who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, spent time with Jesus, learned from Jesus. In this text, he's going to say, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. This is a firsthand eyewitness who is writing these verses here. And if we remember back to who John was, you remember there were the 12 disciples, but there were three that had an even closer relationship, Peter, James, and John. And of those three, it was John who was called the beloved disciple, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So there's an indication that of the 12, there was three that had a close-knit relationship even tighter than the 12 to Jesus. And then there was one one who spent an intimate amount of time with Jesus in personal, one-on-one, -on -one, ongoing relationship. If you remember in the Gospel of John, in, in, in Matthew, in Luke, there's a, a story where 
these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, went up on a mountain, and they were the ones that, that had the privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured before their eyes. He shone with glory. They saw Moses and Elijah with him, and then they heard the voice of God booming from the heavens, saying, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's this John. And that same John who had that firsthand eyewitness account and encounter with the life of Jesus, the works of Jesus, the, the teachings of Jesus, writes these letters and opens these letters with these words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you also, to, to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, or so that your joy may be complete. Do you hear it? This is a first-hand eyewitness to Jesus. This is who is writing this text right out of the gate. We have to see that. We have to understand that. We are hearing from a firsthand eyewitness to Jesus. That is an important point for the whole book because that's also something John is trying to do, which is strengthen our faith. And many of us wonder, is Jesus really the Son of God? Did he really come in the flesh? Did these miracles we read in the Gospels and throughout the Bible, did they really happen? Did he really fulfill the, the Old Testament? Did he really say those things? Are those things that he said really true? And John is saying, absolutely, 100%, without a shadow of doubt, he is really the Son of God, come in the flesh to save the world, take away our sins. He's the Savior of the world. Believe it. That's what John is writing. And that ought to cause us to do backflips because that means what we believe in is not false or fake. It's the real thing. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news for the world that we have hoped in. John is a firsthand eyewitness. We're reading from a person who walked with Jesus learned from Jesus, heard Jesus, saw Jesus, and touched Jesus. There's a ton of evidence that this is the John, the apostle, the disciple of John. There's a ton of evidence in the language of the letters of John that give us evidence of that. Much of the language is almost identical to the gospel of John, which there's, there's really no question historically that the apostle John wrote that. And so it's, it's almost identical in language. There's so many themes. Even the first few verses that we're reading here are almost identical. If you, if you remember back, we studied through the Gospel of John. And if you remember back how John starts, the Gospel of John, it begins almost identical, almost with the same language. John says here that which was, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. In the Gospel of John, he, he says, in the beginning was the Word. 
The Word was with God. The Word was God in the beginning. It, it's the same language. It's the same Greek. It's the same thing. John is, it, it's the same in both the letter and the gospel. And there in the beginning, in the gospel of John, he says the Word became flesh in John chapter 1, verse 14. And here in these verses, he doesn't say in the beginning the Word became flesh. He says that which was from the beginning manifest himself to us or was manifest to us which was made visible which was it, it came in the flesh he's he's saying the same words it's the same thing john makes distinctions in the, in the gospel of john and in the letters of john <clears throat> between life and death between darkness and light those same distinctions are in the letters of john he makes an emphasis on abiding in christ in john chapter 15 a whole chapter on abiding remaining walking in, practicing the Christian life. That's the almost entirety of the letters of John. The first letter here is, is going to say abide or practice or walk in so many times you're going to get annoyed by it. It's repeated over and over again. It's a major theme in this letter. The language of being born again. In, in the Gospel of John, he says in John chapter 3, we must be born again. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is a work of the Spirit. It's not done by man. It, it is a work of the Spirit. And then in the letter of John, he talks about to believers, you have been born of God, a work of the Spirit. It's the same language. So there's tons of evidence that this is written by the Apostle John, the disciple who knew Jesus intimately, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, touched Jesus. And, and what's interesting, though, is the style. The, the language is almost the same, but the style is radically different. The style of the two letters, the, the, sorry, the letters of John and the Gospel of John are so different. One is a theological work trying to make the argument for unbelievers of who Jesus is so that they might believe. These are letters written to believers to strengthen their faith. And this letter, these letters, are written in a personal, pastoral, caring tone and way. And that leads us to why he is writing. John was not only a disciple, not only an apostle, but he was also a pastor. If, if you know your Bible, if you know a little bit of church history, you know that Paul was appointed and, and, and sent by the Holy Spirit to start the church at Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, on the coast, and he was sent there to start the church at Ephesus. Initially stopped by the Spirit from going there, later in sent by the Spirit to go there, and when he went there, he stayed in Ephesus for several years, and he discipled individuals, led them to, the, to, to understand Jesus and, and faith in Christ, and then began to disciple them for multiple years. And in, you can read it in Acts, you can read it in, in, in the book of Ephesians, he later left there, and then he appointed Timothy to come and, and serve as pastor in that church. We can read it in the letters of Timothy. And so this church is significant the, in Ephesus. Church history records that later, after Paul and after Timothy, John lands in Ephesus, and he's the pastor of the church there. And he was also given oversight and responsibility for multiple churches, house churches, in this region. 
And so John is writing as a pastor. And if you know your, your geography in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and you know where Ephesus is, you know that it's only an hour drive up to Laodicea, Colossae, which is where the book of the church of Colossae and the book of Colossians was written to, Hierapolis, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, seven of those churches were, are, if you read the book of Revelation, the first chapter, are the churches that John writes to to address some issues in. So there's another witness, evidence to this is who is writing, but what is he doing when he's writing? He's writing to churches, he's writing, what's the point? He's writing to people he personally knows and cares about deeply. He's writing to people he personally knows and cares about evil, people he's spent time with, people he's, he's pastored, people he's encouraged, people he's walked through life with. And that bleeds out in the text repeatedly. Over and over again, he talks about the, these are believers that he's writing to. And that's over a dozen times in the text we can see examples of this, but a few examples. 1 John 2 20 to 21, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. You have been anointed by the Holy One. You, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the truth and because no lies of the truth. He's writing to believers. Another example, 1 John 5, 13, which would be a great verse for you to memorize through this study. I write these things to you who believe. It's clear cut. He's writing to believers in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. But he's also writing to people, not only that believe, but he's writing to people he knows and cares about deeply. Nearly a dozen times he's going to call them beloved, which is another way you can translate it as dear friends. 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 He knows these people. And he's not only going to call them beloved and dear friends, he's going to call them children. Later in, in 3 John, verse 4, he's going to say, I have no greater joy than to hear. He's writing to one individual in that letter. I have no greater joy than to, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is a, a, a person who's walked with these individuals, a, a, a pastor, and he writes with a pastoral tone, a, a care, and an empathy. And that's what he's doing in this letter and how he's writing. And it bleeds out everywhere. And that leads us to the purpose of his writing. And this is where we're going to spend a few minutes this morning. The purpose of his writing. And he really writes for two distinct purposes. The first is to strengthen the faith of believers. To strengthen their faith in this difficult context. And the second is to guard their faith. Particularly to guard them from hoping in anything other than Jesus. So those are the two reasons. Let's explore these a little bit further. First, to strengthen faith. This, by and large, is the primary point of these letters. Just in 1 John, there's only, there, there's only 105 verses just in the first letter. And here's what's amazing. By my count, in 105 verses, there are 86 references to strengthening or deepening or assuring faith. 86 times he makes some sort of reference to strengthening the faith of believers, of assuring them that what they've hoped in is true. 
and trustworthy. And therefore they have hope because it's true. 21 different times he's going to say, by this we know. We have absolutely rock-solid assurance. By this we know. One of those times he's going to say, by this we know that we've crossed over from death to life. By this we know that we are believers. By this we know that we're children of God. By this we know that we are filled with the Spirit. By this we know that we have eternal life. 46, 41 different times he's going to give a positive test for faith positive tests for faith. In other words, he's going to say, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we faithfully obey, we have evidence or a test or a way of verifying that we have been redeemed, that we have eternal life. It's a positive test. He's going to give 41 different references to positive tests for how you can know. Usually what he's going to do in those, those positive tests, he's also going to couple it with a negative test. 24 different times in association with those positive tests, he's going to give a negative test. For example, 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So while we look at all the positive tests, he's also going to give us negative tests, ways of, of evaluating if we say something, a big thing he's going to talk about, we'll talk about it next week, claim something, but our lives don't match the thing we claim, then we have evidence that we may not be believers. We may not be redeemed. This is going to be a big deal for him, claiming and doing versus claiming and not doing. So we have these 86 different references over and over again. John's going to be working on strengthening. He's writing to strengthen their faith. And this is one of the chief ways that 1 John is distinguished from the Gospel of John. And I love it because if we read 1 John, we read the Gospel of John and 1 John together, we have a really a, a pretty holistic gospel and a holistic understanding of, of theology, of who Jesus is and why he came. In 1 John... He writes so that unbelievers, would, their faith would be awakened. That's why he's writing. John chapter 20, verse 31, I write these things so that you may believe. That's what he's arguing for in the whole entirety of the gospel. He's, he's arguing for who Jesus is, why he came, and that we believe in him. In 1 John, he's not, not writing to awaken faith. He's, he's writing to deepen faith. And that's where we go to 1 John 5, 13, that I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. The, the, he wants us to be assured. And there's a really important point. Why is assurance so important? We walk with confidence. We walk with hope. And in this text, in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, it says we walk with joy. We have confidence, hope, and joy. We have fellowship together. We know who's in with the faith and in with Jesus and who's, who's not. And we have confidence, hope, and joy in that fellowship. So in one, he's writing to awaken. In the other, he's writing to deepen. Said another way, he wrote the gospel of John so that unbelievers would be transformed by the gospel. He writes the letters of, the gospel of, of John. I keep mixing those up. He writes the letters of John. So that believers would live out the gospel-transformed life. And therein is another major theme for him. If you are redeemed, live like it. That's going to be an emphatic point that he makes over and over again. 
It's not something that's just inside. It also works itself outside into our words, into our actions, into our habits, into our hearts. And that, again, is another major distinction. I mentioned John chapter 3 where, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus asks him, how does that happen? And Jesus tells him, it's by a work of the Spirit. It's not by man's effort, man's works, man's ability. It's by the work of the Spirit. And, and then he says something interesting. He says, and, and the Spirit blows where he will. He, he's the wind. He goes where he wills. He redeems. He works. In other words, it's, an, it's another way of saying you cannot do this. It's a work of the Spirit. And a question comes up for all of us. Okay, well then how do I know that I've been redeemed? If it's not by my works and it's by the Spirit and the Spirit goes where He wills, then how do I know? Well, if the Spirit is wind, we can know where He works by the rustling of the leaves. And 86 times, John's going to give us evidence of the rustling of the leaves of the Spirit in the believer's life. How do I know who's a believer? Where are the leaves rustling in the way that John's going to talk about? So these are, again, distinctions and lead us to understand better what John is trying to do. It's interesting. One of the foremost commentaries on, or the old, an old commentary and foremost commentaries on the, on the letters of John doesn't label it a commentary on the letter of John, letters of John. It doesn't label it first, second, and third John letters and introduction and commentary. He labels it test for life. Why? Because he rightly understands that the whole point of these letters is to give test or evidence for life, for eternal life in the life of a believer, the rustling of the leaves of the Spirit in an individual's life. <coughs> so John is pointing out where life is found in Jesus, and then he's telling us how we know that it's been found in an individual's life. In strengthening their faith, this is important for us for unlocking the letter, because again, it's pastoral, <laughs> and, and you know this, uh, most, most sermons just keep saying the same thing over and over again, and that's what John's going to do. He's just going to keep circling on the same themes and, and beating them like a dead horse. Like He's just going to go over and over again. Again, I said 86 times, but you could reduce those 86 sort of summary points or summary things that he's saying into three themes, and the first is right belief about Jesus. Right belief about Jesus. We would love to systematize this book and make it make sense, and point one goes to point two, but what John does is he goes after these three themes that we're going to talk about here for just a second, and he just keeps spiraling and circling and, and, and going this direction on those three themes and then going back the other direction. He just keeps hammering them home. One of the chief themes is right belief about Jesus. He says in, in 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other, in other words, everything rises and falls on Jesus. Everything rises and falls on our belief about Jesus. This is why John begins the way he does in these first four verses. He's giving evidence Evidence for the historical reality of Jesus. Think about what he says there. I, I read the verses in 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. 
Do you realize, you probably heard it, but he says 10 different ways in four little verses. I saw Jesus, I heard Jesus, I touched Jesus, I looked intently into Jesus, I've been with Jesus. What I think is fascinating is he does it, he's giving personal evidence, personal witness, eyewitness testimony of who Jesus is, that he is real, that what he says is true. He's, he's doing this, and in one of those instances, in, in several of those instances, the words are emphatic. He says, we saw him with our own eyes. It's not just I saw him. I saw him with my own eyes. It's not just I heard him. I heard him with my own ears. It's not just I touched him. I touched him with my own hands. That's the, the original language, the emphasis that's put in the text. And I think what's amazing is in all of these words, he says see and heard multiple times, but he only says touch once. And out of the four Gospels, there's only one Gospel, the Gospel of John, that records a story after the resurrection where Thomas says, I need to see Jesus with my own eyes and I need to touch him with my own hands. And what does Jesus do but appear to the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection, and he says, Thomas, come here. Take your finger and put it in my, the palm of my hands. Take your finger and put it in my side. In other words, see with your own eyes, touch with your own hands. And he's hearing this with his own ears from the very lips of Jesus. And where does this happen? In the upper room. And who is there? The disciples, which means John is also there. And here's the most important thing. When did that happen? After the resurrection. Jesus really did live. Jesus really did die. Jesus was really buried. And Jesus really did raise from the grave. And John is saying, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I, I heard him with my own ears. And I touched him with my own fingers. This is really true. It's really real. I was there on the Sea of Galilee in the raging storm. And I heard with my own ears Jesus speak and say, Peace be still. And the storm stopped. I saw it. I heard it. I felt it. I was there. I was really there when the leper spots went away. I was really there when the paralytic came down from the roof and got up and walked on his own two feet. And in that context, Jesus said, that's evidence that he can really forgive sins. So if he can do that, then he can really forgive sins. It's true. I really saw it. I really heard it. And I really touched it and felt it. I was there. I was there. At the cross, I saw the spear go in his side. I saw the nails. I saw the blood running down the face. I saw him die. I was there. I saw him buried. I was there. I saw the, the, the stone across the, the tomb. And I was there. And I saw that stone rolled away. And I was there. I was in the upper room. And I saw him. And I heard him. And I touched him. He really did raise from the grave. We have hope. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not some made-up story. It's not a myth. 
It's real. Jesus really is the Son of God. God come in the flesh to take away the sins of the world. He is really, truly our only hope. This is John's message. This is what John is trying to write and encourage for believers to do, to take heart. The one in whom you've hoped is true. Therefore, you have hope. There's a second theme that John is writing about. He writes about right belief, but he also writes about a righteous identity. Our new identity that comes about as a result of the work of Christ. This is going to be a major theme in the, in the letters of John. If, if it's true that he's real and faith in him brings about real gospel transformation, then that means we have a new clear-cut identity. We really are right before God. That Jesus really can secure that for us. He really can forgive sins. He really can make us right before God and reconcile us. And he makes us, he says, listen to some examples. We are now children of God. 1 John 3, 1 to 2. He says our sins are forgiven and cleansed. We have absolute rock solid assurance. Our sins are forgiven and cleansed. 1 John 1, 9 and 2, 2. We've passed out of death and into life. Out of darkness and into light. 1 John 3, 14, 1 John 7, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 to 10. We're now members among the body of Christ. And this is a good one for the letters of John, and this is a good one for us. We have overcome the evil one. John writes, he'll say in, in John, 1 John chapter 5, he, he'll say that the world is in the grips of the evil one. He's the real enemy. He's the one that has gripped this, this world. This is the, the, the fallen world that we live in. And you and I have been plucked out of his grips, snatched out of his grips, rescued out of his grips. We have overcome the evil one. We have overcome because Jesus overcame the evil one. This is our new identity. And that leads us to the third theme. If, if, if Jesus really is real and, and we have hoped in what is true and truly true and he, in hoping in him and faith in him gives us this new identity, then John's third major theme and major point is then live like it. If you have overcome by Jesus' overcoming the evil one, if you are free, then live like you're free. If you have found victory in Christ, then live the victorious life. If you have been given joy, a new, established, sure and certain joy, then walk with it. If you have been rescued, then live as a person who's rescued. This is going to be one of his major themes that he's going to hammer over and over again. In other words, it's just another way of saying, take heart, be strengthened, stick out your chest. You've not hoped in a charlatan. You've not hoped in someone who can't deliver on what he promised to deliver. You've hoped in the Son of God, Jesus. And you have real hope. Live like it. Breathe like it. Talk like it. Smell like it. Act like it. Live, love, serve, go like it. This is one of his major themes. It's going to come out in the language of abide, practice, walk. Faithfully obey. Those are the ways he's going to say that. He's going to say it over and over again. 
1 John 2, 3-6, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments, if we faithfully obey. That is an evidence, a rustling of the leaves, of the work of the Spirit. He's he's making the point that the cat, the, the mouse does not naturally chase the cat. If a mouse chases a cat, you know that there's been some supernatural work in that mouse's life. If you obey the commands, delight, Psalm 1, in the word of God, the commands of God, something supernatural has happened in your heart. We don't naturally, we don't delight in anyone telling us what to do, let alone God. But to delight in his commands, to to see them, as John's going to say, as less and less burdensome and more and more as the source and hope and, and means of living in life and joy to a person who says that and sees that and delights in that, something supernatural has happened in their heart and their life. 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. You see the two halves of, every, of the greatest commandment. Love God through Jesus and love others. But it's loving others. It's our, it's our words. It's our attitude. It's our actions. It's our service. It's our sacrifice. The same words, actions, sacrifice that Jesus did for us. It's in doing that for others that we have another piece of evidence. An outward working of the inward identity of right belief. So right belief gives us a new identity and it must be worked out. Now that leads us to a question. Okay, Why does John need to write? These letters to strengthen faith for believers. Why do believers need their faith strengthened? You know the answer to that. Because everyone in this room has had their moments of questions and doubts and worries and anxieties and fears related to, have I believed and hoped in the right thing? In addition to that, we live in a culture that constantly tells us, you're wrong. You have not believed in the right thing. This is the right thing. Submitting to God in Jesus, through Jesus, is, that's not where life is found. That's where death is found. That's the message of the culture. No, no, no. Freedom from God. Independence from Him. Living as your own king and authority. That's where life is found. And John is writing to guard against that. Because in this context, there are teachers. He's going to call them deceivers, false prophets, and even shocking and astonishing language, call them antichrists, plural. They are anti-Christ. They are anti-Jesus. They are false teachers in their midst that have gone out from their midst that are teaching them that Jesus is not the way, that life is not found in him, that, that what you need, where you need li- where do you want to find life? Life is found in being your own king and living how you want to live. They're teaching that at this time in John's writing. If he can strengthen and bolster faith and simultaneously make them aware of this false gospel, this false reality, then then two things happen. One, they walk with confidence, but they also confront the false reality, and they don't buy into the lie. 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, actively trying to deceive you. 2 John Seven, for for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and antichrist. He calls them again false prophets, deceivers, antichrist. What were they teaching? Two things 
particular, they were questioning the reality of Jesus. They were questioning the reality of Jesus, particularly that he was God in the flesh. In other words, that he really came. And the second thing implied in that is they were denying his necessity and sufficiency for our salvation. They denied that Jesus was the Son of God, God in the flesh, come near to us, Savior of the world, the one who takes away sin. They denied that he lived, that he died, that he was resurrected from the grave to return again one day. And they didn't just deny it, they were actively trying to teach against Jesus and deceive others into believing this false truth. And here's, here's the interesting thing. If we deny that Jesus takes away our sins, we're either saying, one, that I don't have sin that needs to be taken away, or two, I don't need Jesus to do that. I can handle that on my own. And he says that right out of the gate. Anyone who says that he has not sinned or has no sin is a liar and deceives himself. And then over and over again, he's going to say that Jesus is the one who atones for our sins, is the propitiation for our sins, is the one who takes away sin. In other words, what you, if, if you believe this, if you deny Jesus, then the only alternative, it's not no faith, it's faith in yourself. It's faith in your own brilliant intellect. It's faith in your own brilliant abilities. It's faith in you. It's faith in you being, knowing what's right in the world and wrong in the world and having the solutions to the world. It's not no faith. It's faith in yourself. And John is saying that is not the gospel. That is not a gospel. That is not a good news. That is not good news at all. That's death. That's the garden. Anyone, he says emphatically, who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. And we need to understand, to confess the Son is no magic incantation. It's not just to say Jesus' name, Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not a magic incantation. It's not just saying his name. It's to confess he really is God. He really did come in the flesh. He really is Lord. He really is king. And he's really king of my life. I'm not king. I'm not God. I can't save myself or anybody else in the world. Only Jesus can. That's what it means to confess Christ. And anyone who confesses that has the Father, John says. <clears throat> this belief will be reflected in your life. And that's the big point that John's going to make. If you deny that Jesus is sufficient for salvation, enough. If you deny that Jesus is enough for salvation, then what you're going to do in your own practice in life is say, okay, well, I need Jesus plus a little bit of my self-effort. It's going to be reflected in your life. It's going to, if you deny Jesus really is necessary for salvation, then it's going to be reflected in your life. Well, I need something else to make me feel whole and justified and right in this world and before God. Hey, look at my resume. Look at what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Look at, look at my, it doesn't have to be spiritual resume. It could be your physical resume. Look at all that I own. Look at all that I've, I have and bought and sold and everything else. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Your hope is in you. But reverse it. If our faith is in Jesus, Jesus alone is my means of reconciliation to God. 
It's going to be reflected in my life. It's going to be reflected in humility. It's going to be reflected in how I submit to his, his will and yield to him. I'm under new management. There's a new king in town. It's going to look different. I'm going to sound different and act different and, and smell the aroma of Christ. It's going to be different than me. What does all this mean for you and I today? Implications for us. First, we need to remember the context. John is writing to churches, believers, and churches in a largely secular, largely pluralistic society where they worship multiple gods, where they, where they don't even have a context for God or, or deny God outright or, or even deny Jesus as our means of relationship to God. He's writing to that context, a culture that is largely skeptical and in some cases even hostile to the Christian faith. We could explore Paul and Ephesus and the Temple of Artemis. Go read Acts chapter 18. You'll get the gist. And that's the context in which John writes and the context of these churches that he's writing to. And in that context, on that island, with increasing hostility and skepticism and criticism, these believers, like you and I, begin to question their faith, begin to, to wrestle with their faith, begin to question, have I believed rightly and is what I believe true? Is it based on my belief or is it true regardless of my belief? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Can he really take away sins? Can he really do what he said he could do? How do I know for sure I've been redeemed and have eternal life? How do I live this faith in the world? These are questions that they were asking. And what does John write? Oh, no, 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 my friends, my dearly beloved, my children. The one in whom you hoped is truly true. The only truly true thing in the world. The one in whom you've hoped is life himself. The one in whom you've hoped is, is eternal life. In 1 John 1 to, 1 to 4, he, he, doesn't, he talks about eternal life and, and, and it being made manifest and, and, and life eternal being made manifest. Eternal life isn't just a thing we receive. John's saying it's a person. It's a person we have a relationship with. And anyone who hopes in him has real life. He really lived. He really came. He really died. He really can take away sin. He really is the only means of reconciling you to God. He really is our only hope. With that context, we need to remember there's nothing new under the sun. We live in the same context in a, in a largely secular society, in a largely secular world, in, in, a, in an increasingly hostile world to, to the Christian faith, to what we believe. We experience it in, 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 in all kinds of different contexts, maybe even in our own families. The more we believe the truth, the more we say this is, this is true and, and I, my faith is in, in, this, in his word and in Christ, the more we are on an island and the more we will face hostility and, and persecution and opposition and the more we will begin to go, wait a second, I don't know if I believe. Did I believe right? I don't, am I on the right page? Did I believe in the right thing? Is it true? In God's good and gracious providence, he's given us these letters. He provides us these letters to strengthen our faith, to deepen our faith, and to guard us from hoping in anything else other than Jesus. That's the good news of these letters. Why is John so adamant and insistent to his audience that he heard and saw and touched Jesus? 
Why is he so adamant to give us 86 different references to assurances that Jesus really came, Jesus really is who he is, and Jesus really can do what he said he could do? He wants his audience to know that our faith is not in vain. Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus really is the hope of the world. Jesus really is the Son of God, God in the flesh, Savior of the world who takes away our sins. He's no fraud. He's no fake. He's no liar. He's no lunatic. He really is Lord and King and Savior of the world. He really is our only hope. John says, I saw him. John says, I heard him. John says, I touched him. And he says all of this so that our joy may be complete, verse 4. So that we might have joy. And in that joy, we might have fellowship together. And so that in our fellowship together, we might have joy together. And in our joy and fellowship together, we might then live and proclaim this confidence, hope in the world. So that the world who's in the grip of Satan, the evil one, might also experience the good news that you and I have experienced might be set free. Not so that we just simply rail against them as the enemy. No, so that we help liberate them from the grip of the enemy. And how does it happen? By right belief in Jesus. By understanding our rock-solid identity in Christ. And then by living that out in the world. First, right here in this room. To one another. To the brothers, he's going to say over and over again. To the sisters, to the faith family, to the church. It's as we live our identity together, as I love you, as I speak kind words to you, as I have kind affection for you and you to me, and as we do that, we begin to shine like beacons in the world. Not simply for opposition, but for hope. It's, the, it's what the world is longing for. Friends, if you have faith in Jesus, your faith is secure. Take heart. Lift your heads. Lift your eyes. Lift your souls. Puff out your chest, not in pride, but in joy. You have hoped in the true King, the true Lord, the true Savior, Jesus Christ, who can reconcile you to God. Rest assured, Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is Jesus. Rest assured, belief in Jesus is our only hope. Rest assured that if you've hoped in him, you have a new identity before God. You are righteous. You are considered right with God. He now loves you, as John will say, a child. What love is this? That we should be called children of God, John says. You are as loved as Jesus is. He will no more forsake you than he would ever forsake Jesus. What confidence does that give you? What hope does that give you? If that's who you are, then live like that in the world. Live that hope. Live that confidence. That's what John's message is. This is the message of the letters of John. As we end, I want to encourage you to consider something for this. Here's your homework. I want you guys to, we're going to be in this for about 15 weeks. I want you to try to read through the letters of John, all three of them. Try to read through them at least three times during those 15 weeks. It's, it's, they're not long. It's possible. 
Just read through them. The more you read through them, because they're so, they seem scattered and disjointed. They read like Proverbs almost. They're, they, it's like this saying, and how does that connect to that saying? It, the more you read through and the more familiar you will get with these themes and the ultimate goal of John. So I would encourage you to read through them for the next 15 weeks or so and read, try to read through them at least three times. I also want to encourage you, as individuals, maybe as community groups or in some kind of context as families, Pick three or four or five verses out of, out of the gospel, out of the letters of John and try to memorize them. Hide them in your heart. I want to encourage you to start with this one, 1 John 5, 13. That's the whole thesis and whole purpose of the letter of John. And it's also what you're longing for. Assurance that you've been redeemed and have eternal life. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then lastly, as we gather, as you study it, as we gather in smaller groups and settings and whatever that may be as a family, as we study through this, let's pray Psalm 119.18, which says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. Open my eyes to the joy and the confidence and the strength and the hope and the good news of the gospel from these letters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. <clears throat> thank you so much for preserving these letters for us, us who doubt, us who wonder, us who worry, who are so anxious. Lord, thank you for the reminder, the confidence. It's really not in us. It's not on us. And, and, and that's one reason we get so anxious. We think it's about us and our work and our actions. But instead, it's about Jesus. And the, John gives us the evidence. It's about his work. It's about his person. It's about him coming in the flesh. All eyes, all ears on Jesus. May that be what leads us to right belief. And may that be what strengthens our identity in Christ, and may that be what leads us to live out in the world. Thank you for this word. Thank you for these letters. Thank you for this encouragement. Holy Spirit, may you take the teaching of your word, the study of your word, and may you fan the flame in our hearts and our lives. For the skeptic in the room who doesn't believe on Christ, may they have heard evidence today. For the believer in this room who's nervous and anxious, may they be strengthened today. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.